Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I thought maybe let's uh, begin with a prayer. Is that okay? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, we beseech you all our actions by your holy inspirations and carry them on by your gracious assistance, that every prayer and work of ours may begin always from you and by you be happily ended through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Dominic, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a great honor for me to be here with you uh, this, this evening. Uh, I was saying to Casey as we were driving into campus, uh, it's um, very edifying to know that a group of college students would be willing to sit and listen to a talk about St. Thomas Aquinas and purgatory on a Friday evening. So I'm already very edified and very impressed by the Thomistic Institute chapter here at Mississippi State and by the caliber of students. I want to say this. Um, uh, so the way this works with the Thomistic Institute is that there's a Rolodex of speakers from all over the country that the leaders of each chapter can then select. And under each speaker, there's a list of talks that they're willing to give. And they, the Thomistic Institute, uh, which is in Washington, D.C., is part of the pontifical faculty of which I'm the president, maintains a list uh, and contacts those speakers every so often uh, to see if the list is still good. You still like giving these talks, you know, because some of the talks can be popular. I'm not sure when I put this talk on purgatory on my list, but I've never been asked to give it <laughs> until now. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. But that's also by way of preface uh, that while I know this material, um, I don't know if we have any education students in the room, but knowing the material and teaching the material can sometimes be two different things, right? So I ask your patience if not everything is as clear as it would be if this were the 10th time a Thomistic Institute chapter were asking me to give this lecture. So when you think about presenting a material, one of the thing, things a teacher has to think about is how much background and how much foundation should I lead or should, should I lay until we get into the meat of the thing that everyone's here to talk about, which is purgatory and the Catholic understanding. Um, and turns out for St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians and doctors of the church, uh, quite a bit. That's usually the answer. Quite a bit of background and foundation. Um, this is an outline of what we're going to do this, this evening. First, I'm going to give you a brief word on human nature as St. Thomas and really the rich Catholic tradition has understood human nature. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the consequences of sin and how we understand it the nature of judgment and punishment, why there is punishment, and St. Thomas's understanding of punishment with relation to our sinfulness. And then finally, purgatory, the why, the what, and usually the question most Catholics are interested in is how long am I going to have to spend there? Okay. So let's begin with a little bit about human nature. The first thing about human nature and the understanding of human nature from a Catholic position, and even really a traditional Christian position, is that we want to avoid any sense of dualism, that somehow the body and the soul are different things. 
uh, different components of the person. The idea that the body is a part and the soul is the part is a part. For Catholic Christianity and really for traditional Christianity, body and soul are intermingled. They're not, they're not simply parts. You are not your body, you are not your soul, you are both. Okay? Our body is just as important as our soul, and our soul as as important as our body. So we want to avoid a sort of a platonic view, even though Plato was the philosopher of choice of a lot of the early Christians in the first millennium of Christianity. Um, Plato kind of had this view that the soul is really kind of the motor of the body and can be weighed down by the body. Any of you who have studied philosophy or studied Plato knows that he thinks the soul pre-exists and is taken and ripped from the uh, plane of the souls and smashed into a human body which it wants to escape and to return to its true home. Okay? Um, that's not what we believe. It's not what Christians believe. And on that, I can say that you know, Catholics and Protestants would certainly agree. Um, Descartes, the Cartesian turn in the modern era, uh, is the soul is just a sort of ghost in the machine. Think about it as the captain of the ship. Um, that's also not what we want to hold. Uh, the other sort of age-old heresy... About, the human, about human nature is Gnosticism. And we still see variants of this. Gnosticism sort of comes to life every so often in the history, especially of Western culture, but is certainly prevalent in some Eastern religions, which, is, which suggests that the soul somehow is pure while the body is corrupting. You can see elements of uh, Platonism in here. Rather, for St. Thomas... The soul, the human person needs to be understood as a composite, a composite of body and soul. And I know, uh, I know some of you are in the reading group doing Aquinas 101. I heard that. So I know this whole concept of matter and form has become very familiar with everybody. So matter and form. St. Thomas is one of the first theologians in the Western church to really embrace Aristotle. Now, some people might ask, well, why, why read these philosophers? We've got revelation. We've got scripture. All of that is true, but we also believe that God gave us reason to help figure out some of the mysteries that he has revealed. Not everything is laid out so clearly in divine revelation, right? So uh, St. Anselm, faith fides querens intellectum, faith seeks understanding. And wherever there is truth, be it in philosophy, be it in science, be it in economics and you know, engineering, Truth always brings us closer to God because God is truth, right? So there's natural truths and natural things we can sort of think and logic and, and trying to make sure things aren't contradictory and that what, we're, what re Revelation reveals to us, God does not reveal things that are stupid. He reveals smart things because he himself is smart. He is truth itself, right? And so when St. Thomas started looking at Aristotle, he started to see that Aristotle, even though he was a pagan, had figured out quite a few things about human nature and the world and society, even though he didn't have revelation and faith. And so St. Thomas, we might say we can take those thoughts and baptize them, if you will, and help us to understand who we are and who we are before God. You following me on all of this? Okay. The point here is that for St. Thomas, it's not that faith and reason work together. 
St. John Paul II said in his famous encyclical Fides et Ratio that faith and reason are like the two wings of the eagle that raise us to the heights of the truth of God. We need both, faith and reason. And so for St. Thomas, looking at um, the human person, knowing uh, what the human person is and how the soul and body work together, he would say that the soul, the intellectual soul, which is our soul, is united by its very being, its very existence to the body as its form. For those of you who haven't been watching the Aquinas 101 videos, matter, of course, is the stuff of something. Form is not just the shape, but the way it exists. So Michelangelo's David, right? Matter is the marble, but it is in the form of David, of a man, okay? So St. Thomas sees the soul as the form of the body. So the, soul, the body needs the soul to make it what it is. And the soul is the principle animating it, giving it life. And the, body need, and the soul needs the body. Because our souls, we are not angels. There's a difference between angelic spirits and the spirit of our soul. Angels are incredibly intelligent by an infinite degree from where we are, but our soul is, in fact, made to be incarnate, if you will, in a body. Okay, so we need the body. The soul, for St. Thomas, needs the body, in this sense, for knowledge, for movement, for imagination, and memory. This is an Aristotelian principle that St. Thomas borrows that all knowledge begins with the senses, which is to say uh, the exterior senses of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, and the interior senses, he has more, but these are the two I think that most people would relate to, imagination and memory. So St. Thomas would have no argument with modern neuroscience that you, know, you put somebody into a, a CAT scanner um, or, you know, then they can see that certain parts of the brain light up when you think certain things. He would say, yep, of course, because the, the brain is part of the body. Uh, we take in knowledge through our senses, and everything that we think, we think by turning the word he uses and borrows from Aristotle, is, called, is a phantasm. We think by chopping, chomping on images in our head. Catholics would say, and St. Thomas would say this, there is no such thing as a blank mind. Right? I hate it when people say, please blank your minds and please. That's false, impossible to do. When someone says, please clear your minds, what do you do? You think of a blank wall? You think, that's an image in your head, right? So we always have images that we're working on that come either from things we've seen, touched, felt, tasted, or we've used our imagination to put them together, right? You think about even the most... Uh, abstract concepts like love and freedom. When you think about love and freedom, you have images in your head of what to you represent love and freedom. You know, whether it's the word, whether it's the American flag, whether it's love, it's your boyfriend or girlfriend or your mother, or your father, whatever it is. When you think about God, you have images. Maybe it's some picture of Jesus Christ that you, you like or some image of Jesus Christ, the beard, the mustache, and the long hair. You think about God the Father, you might think like some old man in white sitting on a throne somewhere. You know, I mean, it's, even though we know that's not accurate, we cannot learn but with the brain, but with the body. We cannot have any sort of knowledge but with the body. But the soul's activities 
transcend the material of the body. There is nothing that can explain, no firing of neurons, no cells interacting, that can explain all of the highest concepts and truths that you and I have, like the truths of freedom and love, the, truth, the, the, the concept of truth. The fact, for instance, even on more mundane things, that um, you know, they have all these new breeds of dogs, like golden doodles and things like that, right? When a golden doodle walks in, even if I've never seen a golden doodle before, I know it's a dog, right? I'm not limited to, well, I don't know what that thing is because I've never, no, I have, a, I have, a, I have an image of what a dog is, four, a, four legs, a tail, usually about yay big, you know, and uh, man's best friend, right? So I've never seen this breed before, you know. This is really important when you meet some breeds that are really ugly, right? <laughs> Yes, that's a dog. It's a hideous one, but it's a dog. All right. Okay. So here's a... It's natural for the soul... To, this is all St. Thomas from the Summa. It's natural for the soul to understand by turning to the phantasms as it is for it is to be joined to the body. But to be separate, separated from the body is not in accordance with its nature. We're going to come back to this later. And likewise, to understand without turning to phantasms is not natural to it. Otherwise, the body would only need the soul for life. See, the body is contributing something to the soul. It's how it gets knowledge. So when we die and our body is separated, or our soul is separated from the body, St. Thomas would say, he would argue, that there's something not quite right with how the soul gets knowledge. Now, if you make it into heaven and you're in the beatific vision and seeing God as he is face to face, that's more than makes up for not having your body to take in information. But it does, it is something that's um, not what you're naturally supposed to be. That's why, that's why we believe in the general, general resurrection of the dead. Or rather, it's because we, faith has revealed that there is a general resurrection of the dead that we know that, there's some, that the soul needs the body for eternity because Christ has promised there is a re everyone will rise in the end, you see. So that means the body's important. That's what's behind the churches, all the churches' funeral rites about incensing the body and being reverent even to a dead body because it's important. It's going to come back and this person's going to have it in a glorified way. The body's important, right? The body and soul need each other. Now, what is then the goal? You've got a body, you've got a soul. For St. Thomas, the goal, or we might call it the telos in Greek, is something that all things have. Everything, every creature has a purpose. Electrons, their purpose is to revolve around protons and neutrons. Geese, they fly south. You know, galaxies, they expand. Uh, trees grow towards the sun. That's what their nature is. Right? And that, that goal, we would use this word, I put it in quotes because it's not really an English word, so we're making a word up here. It's connatural, which means it's natural with whatever the thing is. What is it made for? You see what's implicit here. What's implicit here is that things have a definite nature and a definite purpose. Things have a definite nature and a definite purpose, whether you're talking about ants, whether you're talking about planets, whether you're talking about dogs, humans, 
or angels. Things have a definite purpose. And they are fulfilled when they move to that purpose and achieve and, and um, claim that purpose and actually possess that purpose when they've done what they're supposed to do, what they're made to do. For St. Thomas, love in its most primal sense is the drive we have, in some ways speaking equivocally, because we would not want to say, I mean, you wouldn't want to say an electron loves revolving around a proton and a neutron, but it does. And St. Thomas, you know, it's just an equivocal way of speaking about it. Love is the drive to perfection, to fulfillment of what a thing is made to be. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of, if we were having a class on this, this would be a whole day just on the different kinds of love in St. Thomas. But for humans, our love is a special kind of love for St. Thomas. It's, uh, he, call, he uses the word delexio in Latin, which means it's a love of choice. We get to choose where we find our purpose and in what and in whom we find our goal or our end, right? That doesn't mean all choices are equal, but we still get the choice, right? So for, how do we figure that out? How do we figure out as humans with free will and an intellect, how do we figure out what we're made for? Well, St. Thomas would say you look at the human nature, and you then uh, sort of figure out what is unique about the human nature or what is highest in the human nature. And for St. Thomas, the highest is the intellect, the fact that we can think and come to truth and come to understand truth. It's a, it's a, it's a power of the soul that uses all the information from the body to come to not only practical things, I mean, the truth of, the layout of this campus, which freshmen hopefully know by now, but certainly know the most important things. They know how to get from their dorms to the, uh, to the, to the dining hall, right? That's a truth, the practical truth, a very practical truth, a very important truth. But then there are also speculative truths, truths that have no, like, purpose other than they're true and it's good to know, like the truth about freedom and the truth about love the truths about God. Right? So for St. Thomas, we are most fulfilled when we're thinking and pursuing these highest truths, and especially the highest truth about truth itself, which is God. We're most fulfilled in that way. Because God, and this is the Catholic understanding, God made us for himself, to know him, to love him, and, be in, and to be in communion with him. And that's when we're at our best. Not that he needs us, but that we were made to need him. The other power uh, that is uniquely human or uniquely rational, I mean, the angels have intellect as well as well, is the will, which, who, which, which whole purpose is the pursuit of goodness. And by goodness, St. Thomas means something very specific. Goodness is that which perfects. You know, it could be something small. You're starving, and so pizza, goodness is a slice of pizza in a very pragmatic way, Right? But for St. Thomas, just like for you know, um, Aristotle, Aristotle spoke of the good. But, but see, because he's a man of faith, St. Thomas knows the good is not some abstract entity. It's God. He is the source of all goodness. And anything that is truly good is truly good because he's made it so. And it somehow participates in his goodness. Right? The will, St. Thomas calls it, it's an appetite. You think of all the, you know, your lower appetites when you crave food or crave this or crave that. 
St. Thomas says the will is a rational appetite. It can pursue things that's presented to it by, by the intellect. And then, of course, we have all of our lower powers, our passions, our emotions. These things are malleable. Appetites are all malleable, and even the will, we're going to talk about that in a minute, even the will is malleable. Our, our, our passions are attracted to certain things at certain times and repulsed by other things at other times. Right? We share, this is the part we share with animals. Animals have this. Right? They just, but they don't have what we have, which is intellect. I mean, they can be trained and they can be smart in a certain way, but an animal is never going to be able to understand the concept of uh, liberty or justice. Right? It's important to say that our passions, our emotions are neither good nor evil. St. Thomas is not a Stoic. St. Thomas thinks that passions and emotions should be felt, should be felt deeply. And it's because we're usually weak and can't handle our passions or direct them by the intellect and will that we, that we fear what, what we feel, that they're going, they're going to make us weak or vulnerable or they're going to make us do things we'd rather not do, right? The virtuous person for St. Thomas is not somebody who doesn't feel things. The virtuous person is somebody who can feel very deeply because the virtuous person is someone who is holistically well-rounded and is not scared of his or her emotions and therefore is free to feel them because it's who we are. It's how God made us to have these, right? Now, what is happiness then? Happiness for St. Thomas and for Aristotle is flourishing. It means everything in us is actualized to the full. Perfected to the full in what is uniquely human, the thinking and the loving in all the best ways, not in ways that are that are, are deficient or that can be problematic. And for Aristotle, perfect happiness was simply being a person who reasoned well, who thought well about things, and chose well. That's not enough for St. Thomas, because he's a man of faith. Right? For St. Thomas, perfect happiness, and even though there can be imperfect happiness in this world, perfect happiness is union with God. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is united to God, our humanity united to his divinity. Right? In that sense, Jesus Christ, who is God made man, shows us not only who God is, but he also shows us who we're supposed to be. Right? Now, this is how we were created. This is how God created the human race, to be in communion with him, and so if you don't remember anything from this night, I might say this on a couple things, but this would certainly be one of them. The Catholic position is that Adam and Eve were created in a certain state of grace. We, call it, we might call it the first grace. It's a grace we call original justice. And in that privileged relationship with God, their reason, their intellect was subject to God the lower powers or the emotions were subject to reason, and the body was perfectly subject to the soul, helping the soul, but not, and not laboring the soul, not weighing it down in any way. All right? 
So being in right relationship with God, the human person is in right relationship with himself. St. Augustine refer, talks about like the three rings, you know, like the magic trick with the three. You know, you've got the relationship with God, the relationship of uh, the emotions or the passions to the intellect and will, and then on the lower, the relationship of the body to the soul. And once that first ring breaks by the original sin, everything else kind of falls along with it. Right? We are only truly able, even in this life, post-baptism, truly able to be ourselves and in any sort of control or direction when we are in right relationship with God first. And everything flows from that. This is what's lost with original sin, that first grace in which the human race is actually doing and being what it's supposed to be and created to be. And so there are consequences. What happens with original sin? And this, I mean, St. Thomas does a lot more on this, but I'm just going to give you sort of the bullet points uh, of the Catholic understanding here. There are basically three consequences, I mean, other than death. Let's just assume death also is a consequence of sin, right? But the intellect is darkened, the will is weakened, and the passions are inflamed. The intellect is darkened because we're no longer, the moment we're born, after original sin, unlike Adam and Eve before the sin, we're no longer in right relationship with God, which illumines everything. It makes everything clear about the world, about who we are and what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be. And when the intellect is darkened, the will is also weakened. We can't, even when we know the right thing to do um, and want to choose it, we're often weak because often also the, the passions, the emotions are overly inflamed and can influence the will. It's the St. Paul, I do not do the good I, I want to do, I do the very evil that I hate. Right? We're weak. So the body is at war with the soul. The body becomes, it becomes sort of lost in its own creatureliness. So we grow old, we get things like arthritis, we die. It's hard to stay focused, we get tired. You know, first time in philosophy when I had to read Descartes, I think I fell asleep after one paragraph, right? <laughs> you just get tired. I wanted to, I kind of wanted to understand Descartes, but yeah, you kind of want to know these things in as much as I, my grade depended on it, right? And so because of original sin, we uh, forget who we are. People are born into this world with the consequences of original sin and we're discombobulated. We don't know what we're supposed to do with our life, who we're supposed to be, and it's very easy to flit from one thing to another until you figure it out. For St. Thomas, without original justice, without that grace with which, in which we were made, human nature is just itself now. And we're malleable. This will be an important point in a minute, too. We're malleable. Your passions, you know, your emotions... They become addictive and attached to certain things. We like feeling certain ways. But the same is true for the will and the choices we make. Aristotle, Aquinas believe that the more times we make certain kinds of choices, the more likely we're going to make those kinds of choices. You know, the more often, I mean, I'm talking to a college, uh, college audience here, but the more often you, you know, I choose 
I would say, should say you choose. I'm a long way out of college at this point. But the more often you choose, for instance, or a college student chooses not to study for the Monday morning exam, but rather gives in to the temptation to go out and procrastinate and maybe to have a party, the easier it is to choose that the following week and the following week and the following week, right? Before now, you're like, I got a real problem because I hate taking exams on Monday mornings. And, but now I find it hard to like buckle up and study because for the last two months, you know, every other Sunday we've been having some fun, right? Our, our, our nature is such, the more we make certain choices, the more we're likely to make certain choices. Now, this is where, and once again, this is a, if you came to the Dominican House of Studies for a master's in theology, we just have one whole class a semester on grace. I'm giving you one slide, all right? So just bear with me here. What grace is for Aquinas, and really for the Catholic tradition? Obviously, grace is something that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through what he has done, his suffering, passion, and death, the sending of the Holy Spirit. For St. Thomas, grace not only heals the soul, but it gives the soul a sort of new quality. It's a, we, we live in a new way. St. Pope Benedict XVI said that the encounter with Christ puts life on a new horizon, gives us a whole new perspective on our life and the world. Things can't, once you've encountered Jesus Christ, once you have great living in grace, we can, it's, you, it's, you can no longer live as though you do not know. Because grace not only tells us how to be good and how to grow in holiness and how to grow closer to Jesus Christ, it also gives us the power to do so. And it allows us to do so. It's a new relationship with God. Not God as the Aristotelian prime mover, but God as beloved, as friend which is how St. Thomas understands the theological virtue of charity. It's a deep internal friendship with Jesus Christ. The friendship and love of Christ coming to me and working within me. It works in the soul, interiorly in this life. It doesn't work in the body. That's why, I mean, every, you do have miraculous healings, but this is why even after baptism, you know, you still, you know, look, you're freed from the guilt of original sin. You, you receive the grace of Jesus Christ. It's infused in you. You're incorporated into the church. But guess what? You're still going to old. You grow old. You're still going to have problems in life. You're still going to have, like, temptations and dispositions, right? Baptism does not remove the effects of original sin. Now, there's a good, I mean, it could. God could have made it that way. Why, why didn't he? Why didn't he make it easier for us after we were baptized, St. Thomas says there are three reasons. I'm just going to tell him. I, this is not on the slide. I'm just going to tell them to you really quickly. First, because living with our fallen humanity allows us the opportunity to share and unite ourselves to Jesus Christ, who was perfect and without sin, but also who lived with fallen human beings and had to endure that. The fact that we still have to deal with our temptations and our problems and is also the fact that we can ask Jesus Christ to walk with us, pray with us and be with us and give us the grace to um, live through that and unite those to his. For St. Thomas, that's the first and really best reason God does not take away all of the problems of sinfulness once we're baptized. Right? The second is that by doing that, we find ourselves slowly transforming we find ourselves growing in holiness, growing stronger in Jesus Christ. 
And that is a good thing. Those are the most two important reasons. Sharing in Christ's work and the transformation that doing so has for us. It makes us better people, better disciples. The third reason is kind of a throwaway, but I think for the modern audience, it's, it's a good reason. St. Thomas said, says, if God with baptism were to take away, like once you're baptized, you wouldn't grow old, you wouldn't die, you wouldn't have to deal with any of these weaknesses. It could be that people would seek baptism just for those reasons and not for the true reasons, which is to be united to Jesus Christ and to share with him, right? Because we're human. Sin for St. Thomas is something that is unique to rational creatures who have free choice. And while the will is always pursuing goodness and perfection, it's not always rightly ordered, which means sometimes we're ignorant about what we should be doing. Sometimes we think we're doing something good. I mean, this is college. Think about you know, friends who are, or maybe yourself, who've had relationships with people that everyone else you thought was great, everyone else thought was horrible, and then eventually you can see, oh, this is not a good relationship. You were ignorant of the fact. Or sometimes it's er so, or error of the fact. Sometimes it's desire is too strong. This is usually the case with sensual pleasures, whether it's food or drink or sex. And sometimes it's just malice. Sometimes we can be just evil. Right? It's important to say that God does not cause evil to be, even if he sustains the creature who is doing evil. God is sustaining Satan in his existence right now. But does that mean that God is causing Satan to do what Satan does or causing evil people to do what evil people do? For that, simply to say, sin is some sort of deficiency in our choices. God gives us the power of choice and actually is the first mover. But somewhere between that and what we're striving for, things get disconnected, discombobulated. Here's... Here's a quote from St. Thomas. Evil which comes from, that's a typo, which comes from the withdrawal of the form and integrity of the thing has the nature of pain, evil suffered. So this is, I'm just going to say this quickly. You know, someone who was born without an arm doesn't mean they're evil, but they are suffering an evil because there's something lacking. They're supposed to have an arm, right? Um, so that's a, it's a it's lack of integrity. It is of the very nature of a pain to be against the will, but evil consists in the subtraction of, do, of the due operation in voluntary things has the nature of a fault or a sin. For this is imputed to anyone as a fault to fail as regard perfect action of which he is the master by the will. Whenever I make a choice that, that is less than human, is less than my dignity, is less than my dignity as a child of God, that's a fault and that's a sin even though God gave me that power to do that. He gives me the power, but I'm, at, I'm to blame for the diversion from where it should, how it should be used, for the lack of integrity. Right? The most important part here is this one. If those with free choice should defect from the requisite order, how I'm supposed to be and who I'm... Disordered acts that are acts of sin result... And so we trace what regards the activity of those with the power of free choice to God as the cause. He's the cause of free choice. 
while only free choice, not God, causes what regards the disorder or deformity of those with the power of free choice. And that is why we say that acts of good come from God, but that sin does not. Okay, the consequences of those sins. So original sin, just to remind you, darkening of the intellect, weakened will, and the inflamed passion. But then there are our, our personal sins, our mortal sins. When, when Scripture talks about sin, this is, these are the sins it's usually talking about. Sins that turn us away from God and turn us toward creatures instead. You can see why they're mortal, why they're serious, why they're sins, because we're supposed to be turned to God and to use all creatures in direction to Him. What are the consequences of these sins? First is a spiritual death, a loss of grace, a loss of that charity. So when we commit a mortal sin, we lose grace. We've turned away from God. We've lost his friendship. Now there's all sorts of, I mean, this is a spiritualizing of something you see in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament but this idea of when people sin, death usually, physical death usually results, right? So the church has always understood to spiritualize this when we sin, it's a spiritual death. Another consequence is when we sin, just because we're so malleable, we still live with a disposition to sin more. Anyone who has seriously taken their spiritual life, Catholics who go to confession regularly, will tell you that uh, the mo when, they, um, when they have sinned seriously, they find that they start to commit other sins at the same time, you know, until, until you're reconciled with God. A remorse or a sense of guilt. A debt of punishment. Well, let me go back to that debt and punishment. So the debt of punishment is what purgatory is about. We'll, we'll, we're going to get to that. But just to say, this debt of punishment from sin, uh, one of the effects of, of Catholicism and the Reformation was an overemphasis on the punishment. Right? And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then, of course, other than these serious sins and mortal sins, there are venial sins, little sins that may not in fact turn us away from God, but also turn us towards something less than God. So we may not fully turn away from God, but turn, something less, turn to something less than God um, in a way that is disordered or is not appropriate. Another way St. Thomas says, when we commit venial sins, so these lesser sins, um, it's like shooting an arrow. We're still shooting towards God, but we're, our aim is just slightly slightly off, right? Uh, a good example in the modern world is the sin of lying. Some lies are mortal sins, but, when, but every lie is a sin. Every lie is a sin, at least a venial sin. Honey, do I look fat in this dress? No, honey, you don't. He's probably lying. <laughs> All right? Now, she shouldn't ask him that question and put him in, the, put him in position, right? But, you know, you did a great job today. Actually, you really didn't, but we should tell him that, you know. It's a lie. Venial sins. And there, look, there are whole theological articles written on this, you know, that we just sort of accept living. We accept lying as part of living in this, in this world. But it's venial sin. It doesn't necessarily turn us away from God, 
but it's something we shouldn't do. So with venial sins, we actually still remain in grace. Often, you know, you commit venial sins for what you think are good reasons. Uh, you know, you, you, need to tell the, uh, you need to tell the little leaguer that he's doing great out there when in fact he probably isn't, right? Because you don't want to crush his spirit, right? I've got all sorts of examples on this, but there you go. Um, remorse, just like that, debt of punishment for these two, but easily forgiven uh, by the charity that we're already living in, you know, being sorry that I lied or did something that was, you know, slightly off-center, right? But it's important that we understand that venial sins are sins. And St. Thomas says some people will go through their whole lives just committing one venial sin after another, and they'll never even avert, you know? I mean... Lying is, for me, the, just the best modern example. How many people even think certain things are lies and certain things aren't? And how many times do we jump, well, you know, they don't have a right to know, and of course I don't want to hurt her feelings. Well, there's ways not to hurt feelings with also out, not lying either, right? Honey, you look beautiful. Presumably that's the truth for the husband, <laughs> right? Right? So now what, when I give this talk to married couples, the wives will say, that's not what we asked him, Father. I said, well, maybe you shouldn't ask him what you're asking him, you know? Ask him if you think you're beautiful, if he thinks you're beautiful, you know. All right. Punishment after forgiveness. This is uh, part of, I mean, there's all sorts of evidence of this in Scripture. That Israelite, the Israelites, that should have been a, no apostrophe there. Israelites are forgiven for murmuring in the desert, but they're still punished to wander around for 40 years. David's forgiven for his affair with Bathsheba, but the child is still taken. He dies for the punishment. Zacchaeus, we can think of this as a punishment, a self-imposed punishment. He encounters Jesus. He gives half of his money to the poor. Right? Book of Revelation. Uh, those whom I love, I reprove and I chasten. So we, we tend to think, well, if I'm forgiven, I shouldn't have to be punished. Well, I mean, that never works with our parents. Why do we think that's going to work for God? Right? Punishment for St. Thomas is about disorder. And restoring order, that every move against how things are supposed to be ordered requires uh, a punishment. That's true for society, and it's also true for our relationship with God. We call this the retributive aspect of punishment. All punishment is supposed to be first and foremost retributive, whether it's medicinal or not. A crime the punishment should match the crime because the criminal has introduced a disorder into society and the punishment is meant to some way redress and restore the order. Whether, it's, whether he or she converts or gets rehabilitated or not. St. Thomas thinks of three types of pun punishment. Punishment that is against the sinner's will. Think of a criminal who goes to prison doesn't really want to go to prison. He speaks of punishment that can be against your habitual will. The best way to translate this is to say it's the state of life. You know, the, you, know you're, 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 you lose out on something you didn't know you should have had. The teacher who was planning to give a second recess to the kids, but when she got in, you know, the kids were really rambunctious and hellious, so she decided not to give them. Now, they don't know they lost a second recess, but it's still a punishment. Right? 
And receiving um, what you desire can actually be a punishment. Yep, okay, now I got it. Boy, but this sucks. This was not the right thing. Because it's unnatural. But the important thing about punishment for St. Thomas is in this first and the third here is that when we accept the punishment, that punishment is good for us, it also has the character of satisfaction. Now to be clear, we cannot satisfy for our sins. Only Christ can do that. But part of the Christian life is that Christ chooses to help have us be united with him in our punishments. So that by being united to him, something of our punishments for our sins, for instance, penance and confession after confession, can be in fact a token of union with him for the satisfaction of our sins. But the thing is, because of God's mercy and his charity, satisfaction can also be transformative. Now, I realize I'm running a little long here, but bear with me. At death, as I said, we said earlier, the separated souls are deficient in a sense because they have no body, they have no phantasms, no, they don't have a brain, they don't have an imagination in the brain, they don't have memories in the brain, they just have their pure, what, what the soul can do. St. Thomas says they, they operate in a quasi-angelic way. They get their, all of their information from a divine light, from God. Now that is objectively better than even getting how you and I learn in this world. I think, it's, I think we all could agree. Getting information and knowledge directly from God would be so much better. The, that's why the angels are so much smarter than we are. Right? But here's the problem. The soul is limited. We're not angels. So St. Thomas hypothesizes, and this is, all this is just you know, speculation, uh, but based on what we already know about reason and what he's already kind of concluded, the, the, the separated soul at the moment of death is no longer like getting information like you and I are, but now is receiving information directly from the divine light but because it's limited, it, it can make sense of it, but it is a fundamentally different experience is the best way we can say it than to the way you and I know now. It's kind of just getting impressions all the time. The other thing that this means, and this is really settled Catholic doctrine, even though I'm citing St. Thomas, is that when the soul departs from the body, it's no longer in a state of mobility towards its goal because you've reached the goal, even if you haven't reached God. That means without the body by which the soul is able to make decisions and move and make choices and know, the soul is infallibly fixed at its station, at its state the moment it dies. The that's why you should always pray for a happy death, right? And a good death. My Aunt Kay is now 88. My mother's gone to God. My Aunt Kay, her, her, her oldest sister, young, my mother was the oldest, but is 88, and she always says, I want to die in my sleep. Oh, no, you really don't. You know, you, I mean, you want, to, you want to see death coming so you can get ready for it, right? Thomas has this interesting, this is going to go to how long in purgatory, that time is disconnected in some ways after death for us because time is the measure of change and the soul no longer has a body so 
when it comes to the best way to describe it, and Reginald Garrigal Lagrange, one of the great Thomists of the 20th century, describes it as, it's like the soul moves from one impression to the other, but there's no necessarily sense of movement from one eye. Like, you know how we have ideas now? We have this idea, then I think about it, then I move to the next. We learn uh, step by step in this, in this world. Everything we, we think is step by step. After death, it's not step by step. It's like one thought, then another thought, you know. And it's not to say it's discombobulated or scattered. It's just to say there's no sense of the progression of time in the same way as it is in this life. It's the best I can do on that. At the moment of death, there is the judgment. At the moment of death, through these impressions of the divine light, the soul will know itself without medium, without a mirror, without the body, without having to reflect on his life. It will know everything that it has thought, desired, said, done, and everything that was good and evil. At that moment. And at the same moment, it will also know God's judgment. Immediately. And through that divine light, separated from the body, it will know the judgment, and it will know the judgment is right. Even if, for the damned, it detests the judgment and hates the judgment, it will know that it is not the wrong judgment because everything it knows comes from God directly. Right? And we believe that at that moment, some souls are sent to heaven, the damned are sent to hell, and some are sent to purgatory. So we're, we're, this is not starting a new lecture, I promise. We're, we're landing the plane here. Okay. Now, purgatory. What is it, where is it, and why? Well, first of all, why do we believe, why do Catholics believe in the concept of purgatory? Well, there is practice, there is, there's, there's foundation. We, found, we, we have basically three. You know, the, what Catholics read Scripture not necessarily as isolated things, but in, in accordance with how the Scripture has always been received, both in, in the, especially in the worship of Christians from the beginning, how Christians have worshipped. So when we think about Catholics always use Scripture and tradition, Tradition is not just what like popes have taught or councils have taught. It's what the saints have taught, like the early Christians especially, who were living in 100, 200, 300, and 400 A.D., really close to the events itself. But also especially, how did we, how did we pray? How did the church always pray? The, the, the phrase here is lex orandi, lex credendi in Latin. The law of prayer is the law of belief. How we pray indicates what we believe. Right? So the three scriptures, sort of locii, locus, places, if you will. This is a sort of a famous painting. I, I cut off Dante there, but everyone knows Dante wrote the Divine Comedy. He's got the middle section is on Mount Purgatory. So this is Mount Purgatory. Second Maccabees 12, when Jews prayed for the deceased Jews who had, through imposition of the state, essentially sacrificed to idols on a pagan altar. The Jews prayed for the deceased. The phrase that the early church and the church today, so the early church fathers uh, use, people like St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Ignatius of Antioch, always identified um, is this phrase from Jesus Christ, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And that was always interpreted to mean um, that sins or something could be forgiven in the life to come. First Corinthians three, if what has been built survives, the builder will be rewarded. If it burns down, that person will suffer loss. The person will be saved, though only by passing through fire. This is a, it's a sort of um, an analogical interpretation that the early church fathers had, especially this whole notion of passing through fire. We'll talk about this in a minute. The practice of praying for the dead. Well, until you get to the 17, 1800s, um, you have people praying, Christians praying for the dead, including Lutherans and some of the um, first wave Protestants. It was just a practice. You always prayed for the dead. Why? You know. We also have uh, the councils of Florence and Trent, 15th and 16th centuries, you know, declaring what we believe about purgatory. So why go to purgatory? Why is it needed? Well, because for Catholics, and it's always been our understanding and reading even St. Paul this way, which you know, there are competing interpretations, that salvation is not primarily a juridic act. That it, in fact, there's justification and salvation, but there's also in between the two sanctification and growing in holiness, right? So salvation is not simply being declared free by the blood of Christ, but also being transformed from the inside out by grace. Right? So why go to purgatory? Well, at the moment of death, someone could be dying grace and still have like a whole bunch of venial sins they've never actually known about or been sorry for or averted to. They could have residual Sinful dispositions. You could be living in grace and still have like an attraction to illicit sexual activity that you, that you fought against for your whole life, but it still was always a craving. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm always blank on his name. There was an Irish layman. He's a blessed. He was, he was a drop-dead, fall-down drunk. Anyone? Yes, thank you. Blessed Matt Talbot, yeah. And he, you know, I mean, fall down, drop down, drink, dead drunk. And then he, ha he hit rock bottom, had a conversion, and made a vow to God in front of a priest that he would never drink alcohol again for the rest of his life. And he did, and, he, and grace, and he was successful. But at the end of his life, he testified that every time he passed a he was Irish. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. He was Irish, okay? Every time he passed a pub or a liquor store, he had a natural desire to want to go in and drink. And the only thing that kept him from doing so was the grace that he had made a vow to God that he never would. He still, he dies with that, still, right? When we die, we don't magically turn into somebody else. We walk into eternity, the persons we are when we die, with all of the baggage, okay, with all of the dispositions. And there might still be some punishment due because we had this created disorder. Now here's the good news. Those in purgatory are guaranteed heaven and the beatific vision. They're not going to hell. They're, they made it. And they know it. Remember, they know the judgment. And they agree they should go to purgatory. 
That's what separates the punishment of purgatory from all the punishments in this life, is that they willingly suffer from it. In fact, for St. Thomas, the most painful thing about purgatory, the chief suffering of purgatory, is in the fact that they know they're going to be in the beatific vision, but that they're not quite there yet, and it's delayed. They willingly suffer this. This is called the pain of domini, the pain of loss. The pain of sense, this is what the Catholic tradition has emphasized for many hundreds of years now, is that there is a, a fire. It's an image that we use. Now that doesn't mean, they have no body, so it's not like they're getting burned. Right, so what does that mean? St. Thomas says that it's, the soul is kind of bound to a fire. So think about it as being um, encased or encapsulated, you know, and, and stuck or bound, all the while knowing, um, all the while knowing that it is destined and almost there with God. But the good news is, and we should always remember, is that God always punishes us less than we deserve. That's part of God's mercy, because by, by rights, every human being deserves hell. By rights. Right? Because God is infinitely beyond us. Anything he does for us is already an infinite act of mercy. Right? Now, how long? How long are you there? Well, it's according to God's ratio, which, and this is St. Thomas, St. Robert Bellarmine have a dispute, our dis dispute on this, although they lived in different times. Robert Bellarmine said, it, just as long as it takes you to work off your punishment. St. Thomas agrees with that, but there's a suggestion in his writing that it also has to do with the transformation. That punishment also transforms us. So one way to think about this is that if, if the beatific vision is perfect happiness, God wants us to be perfectly happy, we die in his friendship, but we die still with a sense of remorse, a sense of guilt for everything that we've done. Purgatory is the place where that is removed from us. In a painful way, but a painful way, like t picking a scab is painful, but also in some weird way relieving, right? Um, that the, the punishment and the pain of purgatory is God mercifully purifying us with love, but in a way that is also painful. One example might be for the prideful person See, knowing that you're going to see God face to face, knowing how pride, but you also know you've been very prideful in your life. And then also in, in, the, in, this, in this purification, coming to encounter and to know the reality of just how humble Jesus Christ is and how prideful you and your petty creatureliness were. How loving he was, in your, even in your sinfulness. It's important to say that purgatory would not outlast a general judgment and that charity is operating in, this, in these suffering souls. They have grace. They love God deeply and they're being purified to receive the most perfect happiness to which he calls us. And that's why suffer, this suffering is transformative. This is why I get the title from the talk tonight 
It's Joseph Ratzinger, the man who became Pope Benedict XVI. He said that, you know, when we die, we are often left with pieces of our lives that we could never put together. The grudges that we held, people's grudges against us, our, our memories of the things we did that we could never say sorry for, and even the things we said sorry for, how we could never really take back the pain it caused God and caused other people. And, he, and Ratzinger has this great line. He says, purgatory is the place where God puts the pieces of our life back together again and makes right in us what we never could as we lived this life. Right? Just to say that this transformative element is a relatively recent focus uh, because of, uh, of you know, the, the focus on punishment was such a big thing after, after the Protestant Reformation. Finally, and I'm just going to run through this. You can ask more in the Q&A on this. Um, indulgences. Indulgences are, are blessed prayers and activities that come from the graces and the merits of Jesus Christ and the saints. That some, certainly Christ, has an infinite treasury of merit and grace from which we all benefit. But some saints also lived this life in such a way that they lived such grace lives that it's more grace than they ever needed. And this kind of creates a treasury that the church is able to distribute from, if you will. And so we have what's called plenary indulgences and partial indulgences. A plenary indulgence is a work, and we can talk about more of this during the Q&A, that the church says, and you can look these up online, that you know, reading scripture for 30 minutes a day is a plenary indulgence, which means it takes away everything. As long as you do it in a state of grace, have received communion, pray for the Pope's intentions. Partial indulgence only takes a little bit. And the plenary indulgence you can get for yourself or even a dead person. That's why we pray for the dead. So that they can be purified quicker and easier and benefit from our prayers. What can we do in this life to sort of avoid purgatory and grow in holiness, folks? Pray, do your penance, do works of mercy. Grow closer to Jesus Christ by united, being united to him more and more. I went way over, I'm sorry. Um, one last, I'll just tell you, for further reading, you can write this down. And I'll send, I can send these slides to Casey if you guys want them. Um, from further reading, two things that are... Great books. Um, Reginald Gergel Lagrange, Life Everlasting, A Theological Treatise on the Last Things. And this new book that actually just came out last week. So I read it while I was, you know, getting ready for this because I want, you know. This is uh, Luke. I'm not even sure how to say his last name. He's a priest. Well, so is Reginald Gergel Lagrange, obviously. Father Luke Wilgen Bush, Saved as Through Fire, A Thomistic Account of Purgatory, Temporal Punishment, and Satisfaction. He's actually the vocation director for the Diocese of Nashville. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.